With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. It's time for the Roots and Roots show with your host, Greg Rashid, bringing you history and music from the black American diaspora. Greg and his guest's goal is to root the show's information in your psyche, providing you the roots to expand knowledge within your community. Now, here's your host, Greg Rashid. Well, I want to say hello to everyone out there. I hope you can hear me. This is Greg Rashid hosted a Root and Root show, which I haven't done in quite a while. I've been doing another show, which is still part of the pantheon of the shows I do, and that show was the Black Senior in Thailand show. But I'm doing a Root and Root show again because I'm concentrating with this show on black history, the whole African diaspora, just doing the whole history where we talk about everything like we're talking about today, black baseball in the 19th century, but we get into music here. We get into civil rights movement, the black power movement, a little bit of everything, what's going on now, what was going on years ago. And I'm just happy. I am just so happy to have on this program as my first guest for this year. And I hope he can hear me. I hope everyone's hearing me out there. I'm honored to have James Brunson. Can you hear me, James? Yes, sir. How are you? I am fine. And James is, um. first of all, we are like, Brothers, although we've never, I mean, we're all brothers in a sense, but like blood brothers in a sense, but we've never met each other, only on phone and on Facebook. But, and I know we are souls from a different, from a past somewhere that we'll learn about somewhere in the future. But I am just so honored to have, oh yeah, I'm so happy to have him on here because he has written a monumental book. This book is, you know, it's, the title is Black Baseball in the 19th Century. And it's not only about baseball, but it's about African-American life in the 19th century prior to the Civil War, right after, especially during the Reconstruction era and up until the dawn of the 20th century. And it is a three-volume, amazing, award-winning book. It's won the Robert Peterson Recognition Award from the Society of American Baseball Research, and you've won so many other awards. And I'm just like honored to have some, you know, someone of your prestige on this program to take the time just to talk about your book and your background. So I'm just happy to have you on here, Jane. Well, Brother Rashid, again, uh, I want to say I'm 100% in agreement. We've known each other somewhere. We are indeed kindred spirits. I know. And I want to thank you for giving me an opportunity to be on your show. And um, I'm more than willing to share what little knowledge I have on black baseball in the 19th century. And the funny thing, James, is that, you know, talking to you and also reading the book prior to actually talking to you, you know, last year, reading your book, it's so fascinating to know that originally you weren't doing any documentation or doing a book on black baseball in the 19th century. You were doing it on art. And just talk about how you arrived at ending up doing a book on black baseball? Well, uh, let me just begin by saying that uh, I am uh, academically trained as a visual artist. I am a, a painter. My expertise is watercolor. I also do printmaking. Uh, um, and uh, I was academically trained as an art historian. But at the time that I began doing research for a series of paintings called uh, the Renaissance series, I wanted to focus in on uh, black cultural life and portray it from the 19th century through about 1945. And as I was doing research, 
I discovered that there was little documentation on uh, baseball or football, for that matter, in the research that I was doing on these paintings. And uh, I took a trip to uh, the the university library at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb, Illinois, which is where I did my undergraduate and some of my graduate work. And I was looking through the microfilm at uh, the Cleveland Gazette, which was a weekly black newspaper that ran from uh, 1883 to 1945. And the publisher... By the way, for you younger listeners that are listening in, Michael, you know, you don't know how lucky you got it. You can just Google stuff. It's <laughs> about microfilm, about microfiche, you know, microfilm, microfiche. A lot of these folks, James, don't know what, you know, they've never experienced it. They never had the eye strain of looking at old newspapers, documents on microfilm or microfiche. That's right. That's right. Well, the, 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 the thing about microfilm or microfiche, but microfilm in this instance, it's uh, very similar to what you could imagine as is a tape, photographed images on tape rolled around a reel. And in this instance, it is a black newspaper. So someone took every page of every newspaper for the Cleveland Gazette, photographed it, put it on a film roll, and you would take it into a dark room. You would uh, mount it onto a, um, uh, I I guess you would call it a a roller, and you would run the tape through these um, plates of glass, and then that plate of glass would project the image onto a screen. So that's essentially how that works. But I would make an argument for anybody that's scholarly, you know, I don't care who that person is, right. you're going to eventually have to go back to uh, microfilm or microfish because oftentimes when um, newspapers in particular are uh, digitized, they run into a problem where they are degraded. And by degraded, I mean they don't capture the full image. And sometimes, depending right. on the type of newspaper that you may be looking at or looking for, uh, there are newspapers that are not there. And the only place to get them is to actually go back to uh, microfilm. But at any, rate, uh, the, at, at any rate, the primary issue that I want to focus in on here is uh, when I was doing research, I came across an article about uh, a black baseball player named Isaac Carter, who played for the St. Louis Black Stockings in 1883. But in 1884, he was killed, and purportedly he was killed for burglarizing the home of a wealthy white doctor in St. Louis. Now, you know, if we're interested in talking about that story, we could certainly do that, but that is what piqued my interest in black baseball and my desire to uh, identify uh, subject matter that could be painted. And, you know, you don't have to cover that story because I want folks to get the book on McFarland Press. as Black Baseball in the 19th Century. And, by the way, you can call in listeners, and I know a number of the folks that we know that are into Black Baseball, Negro League Baseball, are listening in. You can call in at the number here is 5 Six three nine 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 three four seven nine. That's kind of hesitant because I had not used this number in a while. So, <laughs> but that's well, the I number was to call when in. I eventually called in. I got put on hold. I didn't know what was going to happen, and I I noted that that was the number that you had put out there for people to call in. So, is, is are there multiple lines on the same number? Oh yeah, there'll be yeah, they always show up on here. So the one number will bring in a lot of folks. Okay. For those of you listening, and, and let me just please call say, uh, Brother uh-huh. Reed is, um, I want folks to know that should they call in, I am not a Negro Leagues baseball historian. My focus is from 1858 to 1900. That's my focus. The Negro Leagues did not exist in the period that I'm covering. So I can't tell you anything about Oscar Charleston. I can't, well, I can tell you something about some of the players of that 
era, but that's really not the focus right. of this book. And, and the reason I wanted you on this program, because we are, you know, this is the 100th anniversary of the founding of the Negro Leagues, and there's this assumption out there that if you don't really know your you know, history and all that, you know, black, you know, African-Americans didn't play baseball up until that time. And your book just really shows, the three volumes show that, no, that's not true. You're talking about prior to the Civil War, that there were black clubs and teams. Of course. And uh, I I guess the the fascinating part about that for me is the people who are historians certainly know about black baseball being played uh, prior to the Civil War, for example, and they do mention a smattering of these historians, and I'm talking about some of the great white historians that have written on baseball, you know, in the 1960s and the early seven, uh, 1970s, right. including uh, Robert Peterson. But um, no one has chosen to dig too much deeper than that for a variety of reasons. And one of the reasons, other than saying that there's something nefarious going on, I, I would just simply say it's too much work. It's too much work, too much research required to dig out or ferret out uh, the details about uh, black baseball at this time. And it's just amazing the work that you've done on this book. Cause you're talking about, what, almost 1,400 pages yes. of, of just hit, um, important history. Now, again, I emphasize Yes, it's about baseball in a sense, but it's about the whole what was going on with African Americans during that period. You know, people who are totally forgotten, you have brought back to life. Exactly. I mean, you have brought yeah. these folks back to life. Many of these folks are what considered back then, and I guess you and I would be considered that back then, race men. Yes, exactly. We we would certainly have been considered race men. And then depending on the environment in which we lived, we may have even been invisible. And by invisible, I mean that some author, some journalist, some uh, person engaged in a literary pursuit would speak for us, and the understanding would be from the readers, and by readers I mean middle-class readers, even though there were other readers as well, but it would be the understanding of those readers is that this is how black people think because this author said these things about us and nothing could be further from the truth. Well, it's like the book, you know, unfortunately I, when I was in high school, the first time I heard about Nat Turner was the book that was written about Nat Turner that was written by a white guy you know, making it like it was Nat Turner that actually wrote the book. Yes, exactly. And he was interpreting Nat Turner's thoughts, and I was, you know, I'm a kid in high school. I don't know at first, and then I learned once I got in college that, my goodness, this is all false. And, and, and again, let's just add uh, another layer to that, uh, Brother Rashid. The pictures that appeared in the 19th century and then in the 20th century that allegedly depict uh, Nat Turner are totally wrong. They're totally wrong because even at the time, uh, he was described as a light-complexioned man, almost white, with blue eyes. So the thing that's fascinating about that is he had to be demonized. And in terms of representation or somebody speaking for the invisible, they had to construct an image that the reader at the time, whether it be in the 19th century or in the 20th century, could recognize as Negro. So to depict this person looking something other than what uh, they needed to have as representative of, of the time would have been uh, confusing. It definitely would. And that's, you know, and the pictures, I want to get back to the baseball aspect. What you found, and you put some of the pictures in the book, many of them, are these grotesque images of us as baseball <laughs> players. And talk, talk a little yeah. bit about that. Uh, well, one of the things that um, 
I talk about in the book is that baseball is an equivalent to art. And what I mean by that is, as you look at art, art is just not this kind of singular thing. Art is a bunch of little arts from the different types of uh, art that you may use to art history, to fine art, to mass culture, and on and on and on. And the same thing applies to baseball. Baseball isn't the singular thing. Now, we may want to idealize it as such, but baseball is a series of little baseballs as well. And when we look at the history of black baseball, we have to contextualize it within a historical time frame, particularly in the 19th century. And one of the things that I discovered as I moved along, I was disturbed and fascinated by these minstrel-like figures of black baseball players in the 1880s, 1890s. And they would depict black men, or they would depict these figures with these big eyes, big lips, long hands, arms, big feet, in these baseball uniforms. And I knew instinctively, because I knew a little bit about blackface minstrelsy, which appeared around 1828 as a professional endeavor for white men who uh, painted their faces uh, black and actually appropriated black cultural production, that being music and and, uh, uh, dance. So uh, I understood what that was about, but it had more meaning to me because that, that wasn't the answer. That was the late side of it. As I moved back through history to the 1850s, I discovered that the United States at the time had two fears or desires, and one was the fear that uh, they would be viewed from England, having broken away from them, as a Frankenstein, a monster who turned against its master, who created it. And the same thing. And I was about to bring. I'm glad you're saying that because I was about to bring that up. That Franken. Talk more about that Frankenstein image because I had never thought about that until I read your book. Yes, and and from a historical context, it's important because it it gives us a greater understanding and appreciation for how black baseball players were described and portrayed in visual culture, whether it be as images visual or literary. And Frankenstein gained great prominence in the United States, the, 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 the novel, in the 1850s. And by 1853, there were these narrations that were taking place in the country that referred to black people who were enslaved, this fear being that they would rebel and they would destroy their masters, similarly to the story of Frankenstein. Now, there was some context for this, and and I'm sure you know this better than anybody. We could go all the way back to the uh, late 1700s and early 1800s, easily 50, 60 years before this reference to uh, Frankenstein, where black people revolted against their masters, burned plantations, and engaged in these revolts. So clearly they had some context for understanding this. But Frankenstein is significant because Frankenstein was not only created, he was constructed from several different body parts. And when you read about how black baseball players were represented in the 1850s, the 1860s, the 1870s, the 1880s, and the 1890s, it all goes back to this Frankenstein monster. When you look at the visual images, the heads are bigger than the rest of the bodies. The arms are longer than they need to be. The hands are humongous. The lips are big. The feet are huge. And all of these things take back to the construction of the Frankenstein monster, which is referred to as a mismatched body parts that were smelly pieces. And the other piece of this is, no pun intended, the reference to black baseball players as being smelly. 
So it all ties back into this amazing how, how the black body, in this instance, the black baseball body got constructed in uh, baseball literature. And that's something I never, you know, I've seen the images prior to your book, but never had that connection to the Frankenstein image. So I read your book, it was like the light bulb went off. It's like, of course. James is right, of course. That makes so much sense. It's it's really stunning. And and again, for your readers across the world, or listeners across the world, I, I want them to understand this isn't about guilt. Uh, uh, putting no. guilt on anybody. What this is about for me is, if if we really believe in knowledge production, if we truly believe in trying to understand how black baseball players were treated, how they weren't allowed to participate in uh, the major leagues or the professional leagues in the 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, this is where you have to go back to. And over yeah. and over and over again, you can pick a newspaper, you can pick a state. The major newspapers of certain states in those relatively large towns or cities, it is phenomenal that there are always these references to black baseball players being smelly or playing downwind from them or the smell that they created. It's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. It's, that's incredible. That is really incredible. It's something. And, you know, it's funny, as you're talking about menstrual, you know, images, blackface, it's ironic because next week on my show, I'm going to have Tim Brooks on who wrote a book called The Black Minstrels of the 20th Century. And we're going to get into that. that. The music and, oh, yeah, it's, you know, but and, and that's a it's a fascinating subject, and you have you know you have more than touched on it in your book. Now I want to know you've told me, but I want to know um, for our listeners and listeners, you can call in and don't call me or go on Facebook or Twitter and say, "Oh, great, that was great." I want to ask, I wanted to ask James this. No, you got a chance to do it now. <laughs> you got a chance to do it. Now. They always do this to me, but it's five six three nine 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 three four seven nine five six three. Nine 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 three four seven nine. Talk to James Brunson, the author, amazing book, Black Baseball in the Nineteenth Century, award-winning book. And I mean, this brother here, he's how much? That's the thing I want people to understand. How much time, years it took you to get this together? Well, you know, I, I say it took over thirty years in the book itself when I talk about what it took to get involved and move in this direction. And I started uh, this project in 1985. Now, I had no thought on how large the book was. I had no idea about it would even be a book. I, I just didn't do But I became obsessed. And, uh, you know, my family, you know, I have, at the time, you know, I had two daughters. Well, I still have two daughters and, and, and my wife. We would annually go to um, St. Louis, Missouri, to visit my relatives. And my youngest daughter, at the time we started doing it, she was three. And uh, by 1987, my youngest daughter, she was born. And I always made time when I went to St. Louis to go to the main uh, downtown public library in St. Louis to do research because I became fascinated again with Isaac Carter. And um, that's when I discovered the St. Louis black stockings and I discovered how powerful they were as a force in St. Louis. And 1983, most baseball historians who know something about black baseball point to 1983 as a significant year for the St. Louis Black Stockings. And it's significant because Henry uh, Bridgewater, who became the manager and owner of the team, he took the Black Stockings on three tours that year. Now, this is like, this is professional baseball type stuff. And he claimed professional status for his team. They went uh, on three tours, but during those tours, 
they went to uh, Michigan. They played black and white teams. They went to Michigan. They went to Ohio. They went to Tennessee. They went to Kentucky. They went to Illinois. They went to Iowa. And they went to Upper Canada to play. They played almost 90 games in 1983. And I know some people are listening now. And, and James, I know some people are listening now and say, well, that's easy to do. Yeah. If you're thinking about now, but look at the time. Well, and, and again, you, you're absolutely right. The major league teams weren't doing 90 games, man, in, in 1883. Right. Go do some research for yourself or somebody that may ask that question. They weren't doing that many games. So the, the significance yeah, of, of the black stockings, as an example, when I was doing this research, is what uh, tied me to digging deeper and deeper. And from uh, the, the, the black stockings, I discovered black teams in Chicago who were their rivals. And as I branched out, the black stockings played other black teams in other states. It led me to those teams, which led me to those states, Kansas, for example, which led me to uh, – the, the Eagle baseball team in Kansas, which organized in 1870, and they stayed around until 1889. But prior to them, it was the Lawrence, Kansas Union Regulators, which was the same team. So, again, how this played out for me, uh, Brother Sheed, is as I identified teams that were playing against each other, it expanded. So it just took more time. And I became fascinated by who these people were. They became human beings to me. They weren't just names on a page. And I have to say, they have become human. If you read the books, you read the volumes, I mean, they become, you bring them to life. You bring these folks to life who would have been forgotten. And I'm curious, has any of the, have any, any family come to you and said, thank you for remembering my great-great-grandfather, something like that? Has anyone done that? Yes, uh, I received a, um, you know, I, I use uh, uh, Ancestry.com to do research on some of these baseball players, too. Right. And I received a, through Ancestry.com, from um, a woman who lived in New Orleans. And she told uh-huh. me that she was related to Walter Lewis Cohen. And I'm like, wow. And she said, I read your article in Baseball Journal, which at that time was being published by John Thorne, who was the official historian for Major League Baseball. And she said that she wanted to know more information on him. And, uh, of course, you know, I sent her everything that I had at the time. And for for your listeners, if they're wondering, uh, Walter Lewis Cohen is one of the, again one of those unknown black baseball players that needs to be brought back to life. He was born in 1860 in New Orleans. <clears throat> His mother was a mulatto. By that being, she was one of her uh, uh, parents was black, the other was white. But right. his father was German and Jewish, hence his name, Cohen. And Cohen, his yeah. father owned a large-scale grocery store in New Orleans. And he had at least two other brothers that I know of that played baseball, James and um, uh, I, I think his name is Maurice, but I, I could be wrong on that. But he had two other brothers, and he played with them, and they were older than him. But Walter Lewis Cohen was so good that he was the captain of the team. And he helped to organize this team called the Pickwick Baseball Club. And the Pickwick Baseball Club was so named because there was a white, white supremacist organization, wealthy white man club, and they had this huge mansion called the Pickwick House. And they worked as waiters in this house and they formed a baseball team and they became a powerhouse in 1876 right through to uh 1886 or 87 
when the name of the team was changed from Pickwick to PBS Pinchback. And, and tell folks who PBS Pinchback is, because there's some folks well, who PBS don't know, for those they should that know. Need to know. He, if nothing else, you need to know about him. He is the first black governor in the United States, and he was the governor of New Orleans. Now, when you see pictures of him, you might be shocked if you go on line and you you know you do a Google search and you look at images. There he is with his straight wavy hair and uh, or straight hair and light complexion, and really he looks like a white man. But the significance of him, right. and you can find information on him if you go to the library. There have been books that have been oh, written. Oh God, on. there's so many books he, on him. Yeah. Yeah, but the the ones that I love are the oldest ones, the ones that were written like in the 40s and 50s. You know, this guy was a riverboat gambler. Uh, he was a barber. He was uh he loved to go to the horse races and gamble and uh he loved baseball. And the thing that sticks out to me to this day and folks will probably scream and yell about it. He is alleged to have discovered one of the great pitchers of the 1880s and 1890s um, in St. Louis, and he brought this gentleman back with him to uh, New Orleans, and he started pitching there before he came north and pitched for uh, the Chicago Unions in the 1890s, and he continued to pitch into the early uh, 1900s when he moved to uh, Minneapolis. That's and that pitcher was... Well, I'm gonna to have to look his name up because I'm drawing oh, a blank on it right now. Talk. <laughs> don't worry about it, James. Don't worry about that. No, but the thing, you know, the thing well, we've talked about this off air, and it's in your book, and also in um, you're in a, uh, the new book too. The Negro Leagues were major leagues, and you get into this. I want you to talk about the whole thing about because you just touched on the whole, the wait staff at some of these hotels. Yeah. Being ball players, as well um, as barbers, because this is a whole forgotten thing. And yeah, artists, it's, too. It's, artists, um, artists. Yes. Um, now, you got me tied up, man. I'm determined. Now. I'm I'm going to find this guy, and I'm going to tell you who he is right now. <laughs> I got my book in the meantime, right you here can call in my hand. Huh? Okay. The number here is 515. I'm sorry. The number is 563-999-3479, 563-999-3479. I'm talking to James Brunson, author of the monumental book, Black Baseball in the 19th Century. It's on McFarland Publishers, McFarland Press. And they're, they're great folks, by the way. They are. George Washington Hopkins is the guy. Oh, yeah. George Washington Hopkins, and and anybody knows anything about baseball and knows about the Chicago Unions, he was with them for many many years before he wound up in uh, uh, Minnesota playing at St. Paul. So um, the, the the thing about baseball that I discovered for black people, the question was, if life was as difficult as it was for them. In order to play baseball, you have to have leisure time. You can't play baseball without leisure time. And by leisure time, I mean that the the grueling work that most Americans did, particularly men, and it didn't matter whether you were black, white, uh, Latino, or Asian, the grueling work that you did typically was 12 hours a day, six days a week. And right. if you got an opportunity to play baseball, it would have been on Sunday. And in many locales around the country, baseball was not allowed to be played on Sunday. So those individuals that got the opportunity to play baseball that were black got those opportunities either being enslaved where they played some form of baseball or they worked in what I call the hotel waiter subculture. Now, when I, when I finish up this uh, comment quickly here, Greg, I'm going to have to switch phones and, you know, maybe we can. Oh, go right here, yeah. 
I'm 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 going to switch phones right now, and I'm going to call you back if that's okay. That's fine. I will. In the meantime, I'll play a musical interlude as you do that. Okay, and I'll call you right back. All right, that sounds good. And we're talking with James Brunson, author of the book Black Baseball in the 19th Century. He's going to call right back here, but you can call in right now. You can definitely call in. Again, that number is 563-999-3479. And I was going to play some music, but now I'm going to talk. I'm waiting for James to come back. But I want to, you know, this program is all about discovering rare moments in black history, discovering be it music, be it sports, entertainment, politics, day-to-day living. That's what we try to do on this show, the Root and Root Show, where we go to the root of a problem and in some cases of a story, root of the story, find out, bring the branches up, and then have the roots grow in you, grow in you, and you just pass that knowledge on to other folks. Or you pass it on to, you know, you keep it to yourself. And we got James... And you are there, James, I believe. Yes, sir. All right, all right, good. And I didn't go to music because it would have taken – I didn't want to play Lou Rawls yet. So that's, <laughs> that's, that's fine. That's been a little too long. For that. I, I thought I had this player down on oh, the no. phone, and, and uh, I apologize no, to your audience. No, well, no. Well, let me just – No, no. Just, just let, me quickly, let me quickly talk about the hotel waiter subculture. Um, we know – for example, that the earliest resort hotels, and by resort I mean summer places where wealthy white people went to relax and spa and engage in the things that they do, the the fun people, the people with the money, uh, right. went into New York and New Jersey. And the most fabulous places in the 1820s, Note what I'm saying. The 1820s were in Saratoga Springs, New York, and black waiters. And I've been up there. It's it's fabulous up there. Even you know, I, I I've know been there. I know, the, I know you can still smell and feel the money up there. Oh God, yeah. Yeah. Saratoga <laughs> Springs, that whole area. That's a that's a show in itself. But anyway, <laughs> well, maybe you need to do a show on that one. <laughs> well, just. Uh, you know, a quick quick summary is uh, black men and women were hired to work at these resort hotels. And it is difficult to point out when exactly black baseball was being played, but we do know that black people were entertaining white folks already when we got to that period. So it would have been black musicians. They would have been hosting certain types of uh, events where white folks were being amused and entertained during the free time that they had. But what we do know for certain is certainly by uh, the late 1850s, men had organized baseball teams, and they were playing ball games and entertaining uh, white guests at these resorts. And the occupations that black folks had at the time were waiters or bellhops, some of them were hostlers and barbers. Now, the two major occupations that I identify as attached to black baseball and black baseball teams are barbers and waiters. And I refer to right. them together or collectively as the hotel waiter subculture. And by subculture, I mean that these uh, athletes, black athletes, who were not only uh, – skilled at baseball, many of them were skilled as musicians. They served the dual function at these resorts. And this is where I would argue earliest organized black baseball teams came from. They came from black barbers and black waiters, and they were attached to the uh, hotel resorts, not just in New York, but throughout the country. Throughout the country. It was almost as if it was a cottage industry of uh, we have these resort hotels and we need to entertain our guests. And somebody discovered along the way is, hey, these black people can entertain us and they can keep us abreast of uh, one of the sports that we love the most, the 
national pastime, baseball, let's go to see him play. And the fascinating thing about this for me, uh, Brother Rashid, is that I would argue easily that the so-called winter training where Major League Baseball would begin to go south into Florida or Arkansas or one of these uh, deep southern states where the weather could be kind of semi-tropical where they could play ball in the winter, that black folks introduced that. And I say it because as early as the 1870s, when black baseball teams where these waiters or barbers were working, when the, the, the season shut down in late September and they closed down these hotels in the north, people with money moved to the south in the winter because they didn't want to be in the cold. And those same waiters, those same barbers, found themselves down in Florida and Arkansas serving that job that they did, but also playing baseball and entertaining there. That's amazing. You know, and right now we are in the midst of spring training, both in Arizona and in, in Florida. Yes. And it's a little known fact that the black baseball players back then probably initiated that. Now, yes. about the clothes here, and I want to ask, uh, go ahead, James. No, I'm sorry. And again, that's one of those things that's discussed in the book, the, uh, the Negro League for the Major League. I, I deal extensively with that culture, that moving back and forth between the North and the South, and uh, that hotel waiter subculture. Now, so, and by the way, um, Todd Patterson, who wrote the book, will be on at the end of the month. So right, we'll be talking right. more about that. You know, but the, I want to, you know, before we go, I want to ask you this whole thing, this whole myth about that baseball at that time, black baseball being like a comedy, a comedic, you know, that they weren't really serious. Yes. yes. And before you do that, we I think we have a caller. Let me see if we got someone online. Are you there, caller? Yeah, how are you today? Are you there? How are you doing there? Yes, I'm here. Yeah, the ball All right, you got a question for James? The ball players back then was serious. And, uh, you know, I grew up in the St. Louis area, and uh, there on uh, Compton and Market was the old Stars Field. I seen it when I was a kid. I think in 1960, Martin Luther King spoke there. And St. Louis oh, had man. Cool Papa Bell. Cool oh, yeah. Papa Bell was there in St. Louis. Kurt Floyd. Kurt Flood lived uh, there off of Natural Bridge in Euclid. Mm. You had uh, my grandson played for LSU, the travel team. Right. And he's trained He's trained with Ozzy Smith from St. Louis. He's trained with Kurt Ford, who played during the Whitey Herzog era. Wow. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, I remember him. I remember. Yeah, but um, right. I guess you're still in the St. Louis area. No, I'm down south around here with around him in uh in Louisiana. But oh, let me right. let me well, mention some we got, you know mention some more. Uh-huh, uh, let me mention some more things. Well, I would let you do that, but uh time is running out here and I wanna get the, I wanna ask James one more okay. thing. But I want you to call back and talk about this sometimes because we're gonna be doing other shows like this. And we'll pro- I'll, it, I'm gonna have James back come back on. So thank yeah, you if for you ever calling get a chance. In. Check that museum out in Kansas City on 18th Street, man. It is immaculate. I've been there. You got an indoor I, I've been there. Well, you know it. You uh, know oh, it. I've been I've there. Been, I've been oh, there yeah. myself several times. Take care, buddy. All right. Okay. All right, James. And I was asking about the committee. We're almost running in. I got to get you back on. We got, and I definitely have you back on again. But the whole comedic <laughs> aspect that some people believe in, of baseball well, of that era. Yeah, well, this this is the thing that's important for me. Um, I'm currently working on a book. It's called The Blues People, uh, Music Style and Black Baseball, 1865 to 1910. And what I want to do is to dispel the nonsense that uh, we deal with. And it, it, it's, it's quite a 
amazing to me, Brother Rashid, the number of baseball historians when you talk to them. And I'm talking about these are well-meaning, nice people when I talk to them. And I'm astonished at the beliefs that they hold. And they can't sustain yeah. those beliefs when you talk to them. And my argument is, and, and there's some black uh, folks that have written on this topic, too, that point out that the 19th century was disregarded because, uh, you know, it was burlesque, it was vaudeville, it was comedy. And I would argue for your audience that it is pure misrepresentation. And by misrepresentation, I mean that the American society at the time perceived black folks as either childish, funny, or excessive. And baseball, when black folks showed up, whatever they were doing, it was regarded in the same way. And as an example to to leave us with, uh, we look at uh, Ulysses Franklin Grant or Frank Grant, uh, who was a star baseball player in the 1880s, 1890s. Frank Grant, was, he's in the Hall of Fame, by the way. He was so good, even with playing with white teams at the time before he finally started playing with uh, black teams because he had been bounced out from playing with these white teams. He was so good that the reporters would say he scooped and gobbled up everything that came to him so much that he got bored with the regular style of play. And they called him or referred to Amazing. him as being excessive and a showman when he came to defense. He would add more to a play that they thought was purely unnecessary. But the bottom line that they missed is he was making plays that the average person couldn't make. So right. it became it became a circus act, something that was funny. Something that I was mean, something like uh, – and you know, as I was reading in the, you know, reading about him prior to your book and reading about him, it's like I can imagine him being like Ozzy Smith. Yes, exactly. And again, Acrobatic. a lot of the black folk, you hit the nail on the head, man. Ozzy Smith, when he started coming out onto the field, he would do those dumber, double somersaults right. before he got to his spot. Black baseball players were doing that as early as the as eighteen seventy. They would come out Amazing. of the field and and and. Here, here's one better. A ball would be hit to some of these players, and for those that they need to read the book, a ball would be hit to some of these players. They would be in the outfield, Brother Rashid. They would time the play. They would do a somersault, a somersault, not a tumble, a somersault, and then catch the ball. Now That's incredible. Folks went out to see this man. They 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 just they couldn't believe it, and it wasn't just happening in Chicago. It was happening around the country. These guys were good, man, but they saw oh, baseball yeah. as entertainment. They saw it as show business. Right, and I you know so, I wish we could go. I I gotta have you back on, James. I well, gotta I have you back on. I will have you back on. But I want you know if people want to get a hold of you, you have a website anything or they want to talk to you further well they can look for me on facebook and if they're serious we can go from facebook to email but that's from for now let's just start with facebook right that's right and i want y'all to pick up the book black baseball in the 19th century and the author is on here today james brunson's a monument it's an amazing book three volumes 1400 pages it's like I said, it's not just baseball. If you just look at it as a baseball book, fine, but it's more than that. It's one of the be- I have to say that I've said this to you before. I want to say this on the air for the record. It's one of the best history books I've ever read in my top that. five. I, I mean, really, I'm telling you, know, and I've been reading history books since I was like for over 60-some years. I, this is one of the best. It's I know you I, you know, it's really needed, and I just want to thank you, James, for being on today. Now we're gonna we're gonna conclude today with uh, James's favorite, and I want you to introduce this. I want you to intro the song. I want you to be the DJ. I'm sitting back here for a minute.
Well, um, I'm a Lou Rawls fan. Yeah, I'm from Chicago. Lou Rawls is from Chicago. Lou Rawls attended Deuce Arbor High School on Chicago South Side, which is the same high school I attended. And uh, he's one of those guys, I call him a blues guy. Some folks call him a jazz guy, but as far as I'm concerned, blues and jazz are inextricably mixed, if you know That's right. the history of the, of the music. And um, he talks about uh, Tobacco Road, which is specifically a We're going to do the live version. Yes, but it's still good. He, he specifically talks about uh, Chicago Southside, Bronzeville, which is the black community, 47th Street, which is what he roamed at the time, and I roamed those mean streets too. So it's a song that uh, has a lot of meaning for me, and to this day, strong meaning. Well, I'm going to play it right now. James, thank you so much. We'll be talking later. Just thank you so much for being on today. You take care, James. You take care. God bless. God bless you. And we're going to conclude the show today with Lou Ross live Tobacco Road. And this is Greg Rasheed again, going love and going peace. Volunteer somewhere where you can, and we'll see you next time on the Root and Root Show. And I want to say hi again to everyone that's listening on KUHSDenver.com, created by the great Henry Archer Nutter, heard every Sunday at 3 p.m. Mountain time. So, but a lot of people listening live in the East Saturday evenings. So going love, going peace. Lou Ross. As soon as I was big enough to get a job, he saved me some money and buy me a ticket and catch the first thing smoking. I left. <laughs> And I made a promise that if they could just keep the thought out of my mind, I'd keep my feet out of the city limits. Because uh, my part of Chicago, just as all cities have this particular residential area, in Detroit they call it Black Bottom. In Cleveland they call it Euclid Avenue, 55th, 105th. Central Avenue. In Philadelphia, they call it South Street. In New York City, they call it Harlem. Drop down below the cotton curtain, they call In Atlanta, they call it Buttermilk Bottom. <laughs> but then you come out west, where it's the best. In San Francisco, they call it the Fillmore District. In Los Angeles, they used to call it Watts. They changed the name, though. I speak about this place because I'm quite familiar with it. Everyone is in some sense or other. So it all boils down to the same thing, don't it? <laughs> I'm speaking about this place because, you see, now like in the wintertime when it's very, very cold, and it gets colder in Chicago than anywhere else on earth, because when it's around 10 above zero and it's about 12 inches of snow outside and the hawk, I'm speaking of the almighty hawk, Mr. Wind, when he blows down the street around 35, 40 miles an hour, it's just like a giant razor blade blowing down the street. And all the clothes in the world can't help you. And when you lived in a place like I lived in, where everybody had a key to the front hall door because it once was a flat, but then they cut it up into kitchenette apartments. And you leave that front hall door open and the hawk get in there, boy, you'd be called a bunch of dirty names so you can get in your room. <laughs> I speak about this, as I said before, because I know. Because I was born in a dump. My mama died and my daddy got drunk. He left me here to die or grow in the middle of tobacco road. I grew up in 
rusty shack All I own was hanging on my back The Lord knows how I loathe This faithful tobacco road But it's a home Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.